Good morning and go Vols. Big, yeah, hey, listen, if you're not from Knoxville and this is all weird, that's because you're normal. This is kind of weird. It's not, Knoxville's not like other cities, it's, but it's giddy today and I'm glad for it. Um, just want to underline one of the announcements that Sean said, would love to have you come out and be a part of our 11th birthday next week, next Sunday. That's a pretty big deal. We have a chili cook-off every year. Um, and that's always a lot of fun. This year, if you win the chili cook-off, you get to smoke a cigar and then go throw your chili in the river whenever it's done, just like they did last night. <laughs> um, hey, we're going to be in Psalm 2 today. So if you have a Bible or a device that you use, that's going to be the passage that's going to do all of the heavy work for us today, to be honest. I know I say this every week, and I mean it every week, but today I find it particularly true. This passage is going to show us Christ much more clearly and compellingly if we have eyes to see. This is a unique psalm, not taught very often, um, yet it's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, almost 20 times, actually. It's referred to in the New Testament. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through the, all 12 verses. It's not a long psalm. Um, and then we're going to talk about it. And we're going to probably walk through it just at a little bit of a slower speed um, to see how it could lead you and me to walk in the light of what God has done for us. But this is the word of the Lord. This is David writing this, by the way. And then it says this in chapter two, Psalm two, verse one. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay. Listen, we are 22 days away um, from casting our votes on who we prefer to govern us. Election week is coming and it's coming quickly. And if you've ever been a part of voting, you know how emotionally charged that can be, right? I'm not telling you who to vote for. Relax. I'm not going to go way off the political end. But I've always been fascinated at about how, I guess, electric that week could be for a lot of people. It seems to be a contest to see how many red or blue signs we could stick in one yard. Everyone wears a pin or a button or a sticker to, to say that they have voted, that they've done their civic duty. Flags are going to fly from pickup trucks. There's going to be opinions that fly across the office. I mean, it's going to be all through the news feeds. Why is this week so flammable? That one week, it's coming our way. I think it's probably pretty obvious. No one really wants to be at the mercy of a government it disagrees with, right? I mean, or else it wouldn't be very contentious, 
It'd be like voting for homecoming king or queen, something you wouldn't really even care about all that much. But to the very degree that we feel constrained, tied, bound by rulers, we'll get amped up over it. And that changes with age. Some of you in here, you really don't care. And when I said we were 22 days away, from a, you didn't even know that. It was totally news to you, and you probably forget it on the way to the car. But as you grow older, it changes. I remember being a college student, or maybe like a second-year senior, so I probably should have been out of college, still in college. But in my, the way I worked, I was, all my peers were 20, 30 years older than me. And when they found out that I had no plans on voting that afternoon, boy, they read me the riot act. Luke, you mean to tell me? I mean, Luke, you got to, that's your responsibility as an American to get out there and vote. And what really made them sad is I said, well, listen, guys, I only have an hour between this job and my next job. So I could either go vote or I could go to Taco Bell. Them's my options right there. And I'm going to make a run for the border. I'm not going to go vote. I'd rather get some bean burritos. But listen, now I care because I'm older. I've got a lot of opinions and I care. Sometimes between you and me, I think I could care a little too much sometimes. I scroll the same news feeds you do. I rub my bald head and I think, man, what are we coming to? What's happening? It feels like everything's spinning out of control. It feels like we got the wrong people doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. We need somebody new to lead us. We need new rulers. We need new leaders. And of course, inflaming this is the media social media particularly, because fear will sell clicks a little faster than everything else. Honestly, I'm going to be glad when it's all over. I'm going to be glad after 22 days. But I am old enough to know this. No matter who is in power, whether it's the donkeys or the elephants, no matter who is in power, rulers will be tempted to sit on the throne of power above even God himself. And this is how I'm so resolved to say that. Because I am, and you are, and we all are. We don't want to be ruled, we want to rule. We don't want to submit or bend our knee to a power, we want to be the ones in control. It's in all of us. There's this quirky passage in Genesis 11. Stay in Psalm 2, by the way. This quirky passage has these competent people, powerful people, just motivated people looking at each other and saying, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Hey, better to be powerful than forgotten. Better to be in charge than to just disappear in the fringes of history. Listen, I know that no one in here is running for office right now. I get that, at least not yet. But we do all want to rule our own lives. Who gets to be in charge? That's one of our biggest questions. I mean, isn't there a thread from that question just into the very TV shows that we watch? House of Cards, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Yellowstone, whatever you watch. I mean, the big, whether it's Thanos or Sauron or whoever, someone's in charge. They've got all the power. Other people want to get that power. It's really who's in control. We love that. We're intrigued by it. And that's a gospel-born intrigue. I mean, you could go all the way back to the dragon in the garden, whispering into the ears of mankind saying, hey, listen, don't you want to be like God? I mean, it's not right that he rules everything, right? Shouldn't you be the one to decide what's best for you? And we still, that's our anthem today. Shouldn't you be the one that decides what's best for you? It's simply better to rule than be ruled. So we're gifted, really, with this psalm. And this isn't a lament or a, or a, a, a psalm of thanksgiving. This is what would, would be called a coronation psalm. 
a psalm uh, discussing a king being set in. It's all about being ruled and who is ruling. And it's not just for kings, this psalm. Don't be, be careful not to box it up. It's not just for prime ministers or those who are on the other side of the aisle that you don't agree with. It's for you. It's for me. So let's walk through it real quick, and we're going to see how the Lord is speaking directly to us today in 2022. He starts off by saying, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice the action verbs in this, raging, plotting, bursting of bonds, casting of cords. Different generations will do this in different ways, by the way, right? Today, what we simply see is there is a bursting of bonds and a casting of cords when it just comes down to basic terminology, words, how we define a word, how we see things like biology, how we see things like logic. Marriage is a great example. Marriage, we've burst the biblical bonds off of marriage and we've shape-shifted it into just a a junction and a union between two people, whoever those two people want to be. doesn't even matter anymore. And this is what the church gets asked a lot, either by people outside the church or even those inside the church. Why does it matter? Luke, why do you care? Why do you care who marries who? If they're the same sex or, or not, why does it matter? But listen, it does matter. It matters for several reasons, but one reason I could touch on today very easily is that marriage is a beautiful, although common, illustration of the gospel. I don't do weddings where I don't talk about this. Any wedding ceremony I've done, I've said, listen, your, your marriage points to God. It, Christ is our better groom, the one who comes and lays his life down to serve, prefer the bride, who's the church. And the church grows to lovingly adore the groom because the groom lays down his life for her. So she submits to him out of joy. And so you have this mutual submission Both of them laying down. So you have this beautiful picture in marriage, but it's so easy to crack, isn't it? When the husband hits the wife, it cracks not just that marriage. It cracks the picture of the gospel because our groom is not abusive with us, not verbally, not physically. We have a cold marriage. It cracks the picture of the gospel if there's no intimacy there. If you have divorce, it cracks the picture of the gospel. And yes, when you have same-sex marriages, it cracks the picture of the gospel. But that's not the only thing we cast the cords off of. We've burst the bonds of the Imago Dei, which is how you're starting to see gender redefined, gender changed. The Imago Dei is just the image of God, and God makes us in his image and then quantifies us in two genders, male and female, man and woman. And again, what's the big deal? Why do we care about that? What does it matter? When there's fluidity in the picture, and you can move back and forth and then back again, what it is is it's a statement that God has failed to define me correctly, so I will self-define. After all, who better to decide what's best for me than me? Better to be in power than to be submitted to power. We've done the same thing with abortion. Burst the bonds off of the dignity of life, where now murder has shape-shifted into just basic health care. Do you see how we're doing this? We're redefining murder, gender, marriage, mostly in the last 20 years, by the way, mostly in this generation. All of it casting away biblical definitions and bonds in order to self-determine and self-rule. That is all we're seeing. We're just watching Psalm 2. Here's the thing. Nations still rage against Jesus. Rulers still plot. And God still laughs. 
God still laughs. And by the way, that's an anthropomorphism, which is just a human characteristic applied to God in such a way that we would understand God a little bit. But that's not an LOL laugh, right? That is more of a a mockery, a derisive um, look at our attempt to rule. That's all that is. Listen, this isn't a psalm for Democrats, and it's not a psalm for Republicans. We're all tempted to rule and not be ruled, right? This is what it says in verse 4, if we kept going. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion is a symbolic and poetic way of saying Jerusalem. But, I mean, enough to say God is not intimidated or impressed, but he ferociously declares that he has a ruler on earth that represents him, a vice ruler, a vice regent of sorts that is an extension of his rule, and he sits them there in Jerusalem. Remember last week we said that there's three ways to read a psalm, three good ways to read a psalm. One is it's a prayer to Jesus. Another is that it's a prayer of Jesus, which we saw in Psalm 22 and many others, or in this case... Also, a picture of God expressed ultimately in Jesus. And that's what we have. You see, we have a better David. David was God's extension of power in Jerusalem. That's for sure. It's stated as clearly. But this is also a prophetic glance, a thousand years into the future, where Jesus, out of David's line, would be the last king in God's extension, not just in Zion, but all the way to the ends of the earth. David was his anointed one. And he was anointed, if you remember, if you know your Bible at all, he was anointed by Samuel. Samuel came up with a flask of oil, poured it over his head. I know that sounds weird and gooey, and it, it probably is in our culture, but it's something that you did with kings. It was a symbol of God's presence, God's Holy Spirit upon that king, and that's how he was anointed, to, to do what? To rule, to sit on a throne and be God's representative. And then king after king, time after time, they would be anointed to take David's place over and over and over again. Not all of them great kings either, right? In fact, most of them pretty terrible. But the idea was, is that someone from David's line would always be on the throne. We see a picture of this in 2 Samuel, when God says, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, 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 except for a few hundred years later after this, Babylon comes and just hits delete on Jerusalem, stops it all in its tracks, right? And so after that, Israel would wait for the Messiah, God's anointed one, his son, the begotten one, to come and do what? Bring the kingdom back. That's what we see. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Luke, how do you know? He says this to a woman in John 4. The woman said to him, him being Christ, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And what does Jesus say in response? I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one, he says. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm I'm, I'm the last. I'm the last sacrifice. I'm the last priest. I'm the last king. I'm the last word. That's what he's saying. Jesus would be the anointed and last holy begotten king and son of God. 
He would be anointed. But listen, his anointing would be a little bit different. He's not anointed um, by a priest. He's anointed by a woman who breaks a flask and pours perfume on him. And it's kind of a forgettable woman, but really not forgettable forever because he says, as long as my story will be told, she will be made known of, right? So it's a forgettable, unforgettable woman. And he is not anointed to take a throne. He's anointed to take a tomb. That was a funeral. He was being prepared for burial. And into the tomb he goes until he is bursting forth from it to do what? To sit on the throne at the right hand of God and rule not just to the edge of Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. Do you see how these two testaments touch each other? Do you see how this psalm points straight at Christ who was born from a manger and then born from a tomb to rule to the end of the earth? And a day will come when he topples all towers of Babel, delivers judgment, order, and justice to the entire cosmos. It's fascinating to me. It's fascinating how beautifully put together our Bible is. This is what it says in the next three verses. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Let's go on and read the last little bit. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, this is going to be helpful for us. But there are a couple phrases in here that unless you really drill down and look at them, they might... They might just be lost. They're, they're definitely a little bit difficult. One of them is joyful trembling, that you will tremble with joy. Sounds like two words that don't even go together, joyful trembling. And, and it's almost one of those things that's kind of hard to describe, but we've all felt. We all know what this feels like. It's when you're teetering right on the edge of safety and danger, right when you feel exhilarated and yet sobered of the magnitude of the moment. That's what it is like to joyfully tremble. I mean, have you ever stood like on the edge of a large cliff that just drops forever and you have this rail and you're touching the rail and you're looking over the rail, right? Or maybe at the top of a very tall building, a skyscraper of some kind, you're looking over, right? You're thrilled. You're exhilarated by the moment. But guess what? Your palms are sweating too at the same time, right? Some of your palms are sweating just by me talking about it, right? Your feet are even sweating because this is what you're thinking and you're joyfully trembling in the moment because you're thinking, man, I'm safe here. This railing's not going anywhere. I could lean on this thing. But if I fell, that's it. I'm done. But I'm not because I'm safe because there's a railing here. But if there wasn't, you know, so you're teetering on that edge of being exhilarated and finding joy in what you see, the panorama before you, but yet it's dangerous at the same time. Or if you go to the zoo, if you've ever gone to the zoo and you walk into that little enclosure that's got glass, it's like this thick, like bank robbery glass, right? And you're looking through it and you see like a silverback gorilla or some African lion or something like that. And now listen, that thing's not going to come through the glass and eat you. But you're also not messing around either, are you, right? You're not getting up and, 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 and taunting it or something like that. You're safe, but, I mean, but what if, right? <laughs> so you're, you're standing right on the edge. This is what this means. We are safe in Christ, yet he has fire in his eyes, friends. We are safe in Christ, but his cloak is dipped in blood. I mean, when you think about Jesus in Revelation, 
He is safe. He's terrifying at the same time. He's terrifying. And yet he's friendly. We have nothing to fear, but we carry the fear of God with us. This is what it means to joyfully tremble. I think C.S. Lewis does the best job I've ever heard in this. When he writes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a small little snippet between Susan, who's kind of the protagonist, as they discuss um, the lion. So if you're not familiar with the movie or the book, you should read it, watch it, do both. But, but the lion, Aslan, is, is a proto-picture of who Christ is. It's the Christ picture in the story. And she's talking to Mr. Beaver, who you can guess it, is a beaver, right? And so the beaver says this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel pretty nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. I don't know what picture of Christ you have in your head. If he's playing in a field with a bunch of children dancing around him, if he's British, if he's groomed, if he's white, if he's not, if he's soft, if he's smiling. Most people, when they think of Jesus, he's never smiling. He's always stern, right? Always walking slow wherever he goes. We have these weird views of Jesus. I don't know what view you have of him, but let me tell you, whatever view, he is not safe. But he's friendly. He's not safe, but he is good. I went to a prayer meeting when I was in campus ministry. This is many years ago, but just talking about this uh, reminded me this week. It's one of those prayer meetings where lots of people go to um, from different denominations, different campus ministries. I always hated going to those things, right? It felt like such a box to check. But I was there. I brought a friend with me. And, of course, it always goes in a circle. And it got to him. And this is how he started to pray. Jesus, hey, buddy, it's me again. And then he kept praying. Listen, I didn't hear a thing he said after buddy. I thought, buddy? Well, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm cringed out before I even knew what cringy was just by the, it's me again. What does that mean? Like he wants us all to know that he prays all the time or something. So we get back in the car on the way home. I say, hey, listen, so you call Jesus your buddy. Like you said it like you say it all the time. Like, hey, buddy? He's like, well, yeah. He's our friend, isn't he? I said, well, I mean, he's friendly, but he's not your homie, right? I mean, he's friendly and he's good, but he's not your bro. I mean, I feel like we're crossing a line somehow. He's like, well, I don't. I mean, I see him as my friend. And so we had this long discussion on who Christ is. Let me tell you, as the Bible describes Christ, he is terrifying and he's wonderful all at the same time. It doesn't just require us to tremble, but tremble with joy. With joy. He is ruler of every atom in every second. He is not my bro. He is creator of the cosmos. In fact, this psalm does a really good job of handing up how we could walk. How do we relate to this type of king? And it says, kiss the sun, which seems like an odd phrase. That's the second odd phrase, right? But it unlocks the whole passage. Kiss the sun. Kissing, all that is, is back in the day when you kiss the hand of a king, it showed that you are submitted to that king and that you are in allegiance to that king. If you did not kiss the hand of the king, he would take the scepter and he would execute judgment, right? That's what we have. You either submitted to the king or you are, in fact, declaring war on that same king. 
Most scholars of this passage, when they drag the language through the cross into the New Testament, would say that it is probably better translated for you and me today as just believe in Jesus. Kiss the Son just means to believe and trust in Jesus. We kiss his hand, it was pierced for us. We show our allegiance and we submit to him. We trust the lordship of Christ in every area of our life and therefore we escape the rightful wrath and judgment of God. We avoid the scepter, right? That's the big idea of this passage, actually. Mankind rages against Jesus, both those in leadership and those without. Mankind rages against Jesus. And maybe our raging against Jesus is not so obvious. Maybe we're not acting like Herod all the time. But we still don't like to bend the old knee, do we? We all have kingdoms we're building, areas of our life we don't want God's hands on. And friends, listen, you might love Jesus and believe in two genders and know what a pronoun is. But if your life were a house, do you have rooms that are locked with the lights off, with a no trespassing sign on it? Do you have areas of your life, realms in your life, where you just don't want God's fingerprints on any of it? Just like Adam in the garden, we determined that life is best under our own rule because we know what's best for us. Let me tell you, God still laughs. God laughs at that. Christians do this, and we do this in a couple key ways. One is we could just be partially submissive, and then another way is we can delay our submission, and both of them are pretty much the same thing with different clothes on. We could be partial in our submission, have an area of our life where we say, Lord, both of us can be Lord right here, right? I mean, both of us, we could share this. We can co-Lord this thing. I don't have to give it all to you. I can be partial. But partial submission isn't submission any more than partial fidelity makes a good marriage. If it's partial, it's broken. And we see this on a macro scale and we see it on a micro scale. Macro scale, you see it in the news all the time. You're starting to see leaders, whether they're celebrities or whether they're in government, say you don't have to abandon your faith to endorse whatever it is they're super excited about, right? You don't have to abandon, listen Christians, you don't have to abandon your faith to endorse this, right? And what they usually put out there is something that's going to run very contra to what we know to be the truth, And listen, it goes past that. We have denominations that are doing this. There are churches, denominations that are large that are saying, hey, you don't have to abandon your lifestyle to believe in this. You could be partial, and it's okay. And as much as we see it on the macro, we should be seeing it on the micro. We do this. We have hidden areas of our life where we really don't want to pick up our cross and carry it, but we'll drag it behind us. We'll drag the cross behind us because we're not really willing to pick it up and be fully submissive, but just partial. Partial will get it done. We won't bend the knee. And sometimes we could do this in the the, the form of being delayed in our submission, delayed in our obedience, right? I'll give some of this now, Lord, but I will be more submissive and more obedient tomorrow, later, right? And this is the way it works in our head. We think that the future is an easier place to submit, don't we? It's always easier tomorrow. If I pledge my future obedience to God, then maybe God will relent and not be so quick with his judgment and wrath, right? Maybe he'll just get off my back. I think when I talk to young couples and young people, the the area I see this most, I'm sure there's many, will be in finances. Because, I mean, obviously, I mean, if you're a young couple or a young person, you're coming out of your your job more into your career, but, but money's hard to come by. What I hear a lot is, is I will be, 
obedient with my finances. I'll be a better steward, a better manager of the treasure that God owns when he's given me something to manage. Like the reason I can't manage it and steward and be gracious with my talents and my treasure and my time now is because he just hasn't given me anything to steward, which is another way, code word, just saying that God's a liar. That he's commanding things from me, but he's not giving me what I need to actually be obedient. We know that's not true. But what we think in our head is, is when I start getting the bonuses, when I stop making 20000 a year and start making 100000 a year, but let me tell you something, if that's you, by the way, and I don't look at everyone's finances, but if that's you, if you're not a good steward of the time, talent, and treasure God has given you now and you feel like you don't have any, you will never be a good steward of it. The only difference between making $20,000 and $250,000 a year is nothing when it comes to stewardship and management. But what we do is we pledge our future obedience to God, hoping that he just stays off our back. It's partial submission. We're not bending the knee. We're not kissing the sun. But when we kiss the sun and we do bow the knee, we do it fully, not partially, not later, but now. And when we call him our king of all, we unseat ourselves from a throne we shouldn't even be sitting on. Because listen, he sees our plotting and he laughs at the futility of it all laughs at it. I want you to see how important it is that we don't box this psalm up to be a truth for politicians, <laughs> not us. It doesn't work that way. In fact, the cycle, the process, the exercise of spotting unsubmitted areas of your life and then submitting them to the Lord, that's what we call discipleship. I mean, let me just uncomplicate that for everybody. Discipleship's not a book. It's not a mentor relationship. It's not a string of classes that we could put together that will promise to crank out a disciple on the other end. Discipleship is you and me looking at our life and saying, this is not submitted to God. I'm not being fully obedient here. And then trusting him with it. That's how disciples are made. It's trusting the Lord of, in increasing spheres of our life. I remember when I was like 24 hours old in the Lord, barely a Christian, barely a Christian, had you asked me, what does God own now? What is his? I would have said, well, Sundays probably. Well, technically not all of Sunday, but maybe Sunday morning. Well, not all of Sunday morning. I will say God gets between 10.30 and 12. That's the Lord's. The rest is mine, right? That's how I would have understood it because my discipleship was low. It was growing. I didn't know what it meant to submit all things to Jesus. I thought it just meant Sunday mornings, right? But as I grew as a disciple, I realized, oh, no, no, no. He gets more than that. He owns more than that. Submitting to him means being obedient with what I see, what I say, what I hear, right? And then as I grew a little bit more, I realized, oh, no, he owns more than that. He owns all my money and all my time. He owns everything. He even owns my thoughts. And as I grew older, then I would realize, oh, no, he owns more than that. He owns my kids, my marriage, my future, my hopes, my dreams. It's all yours. That's what lordship is. You see, Psalm 2 beckons me to kiss the begotten son of God who submitted his life for me. It draws me in. It's an open challenge to me. In fact, Jesus submitting his life is actually the principal moment, the pinnacle moment in human history where the fullest of rage fell on the deepest of anointed 
That happens on the cross. Never more has there been that much rage against God's anointed than Christ on the cross. Mankind plotted even then, and God mocks them. In derision, he laughs at the futility of our ability to destroy him, unseat him from the throne, and seat ourselves. In fact, we see this picture of the church praying in Acts 4 when the church was really young. And this was part of their prayer. Verse 25, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Does that sound familiar? They're praying Psalm 2, this young church. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is what that means. With all the evil planning and mockery and all the evil words and evil deeds, it was all according to script. God's not intimidated and he's not impressed. Mankind could not, with all of our ability, unwind God's plan to establish his own begotten son as judge and ruler. He is ferocious and he is kind and we joyfully tremble in his presence. Let me ask you, which doors are locked in your life? And and do you even know? Do you even know which doors are locked in your life? I mean, as I ask the question, does it just pop off the top of your mind or do you think, oh, I don't really know. I'd have to think about that. Do you examine those areas? Which doors are shut? Where are the lights off? The last couple of weeks, I've spent some solid time asking the Spirit to find unsubmitted areas of my life. You want to know why? Because I'm still growing as a disciple, just like you are. This is not a question and a process for new believers, but for all believers. In fact, the closer you get to Jesus, the more rebellion you will actually see in your own life, right? I mean, when I was a brand new Christian, I thought I had a few big sins to get, to get control of. I'll tell you what, I've gotten control of those. And because I love Jesus so much more passionately than I did even then, I see a lot more sin in my life. The light has gotten brighter. So I find myself saying, all right, Lord, I see it. I'm acting like Adam. I'm acting like Adam. I kiss your hand. I bow my knee. It's yours. That's what it means to grow. That's a disciple's prayer. A disciple's question is, where am I still ruler? Where am I still sitting on the throne? Friends, as soon as you stop asking that question, you stop growing. You stop asking that question, you stop growing. You can grow in knowledge. You can speak a ton of Hebrew. You can be very impressive with your attendance. You can go off to seminary. You can go to seminary a second time. You can go 10 times, and you will never grow. You will never grow with an unsubmitted life. And if you don't enjoy Jesus, and you were here, and you're like, well, listen, I just don't love Jesus. I don't like him. You have doors that are firmly locked. You have unsubmitted areas in your life. There are thrones you're still sitting on. Let me just say that your most satisfied days are found when you kiss the hand of Jesus and bow the knee. Where is this for you today? Where is this for you today? And here's what's cool. If you can see it, that means the Holy Spirit is showing it to you. If you could see it, if there's something in your life right now where you're like, you know what? I think the Lord wants that. I've been white-knuckling that. I've been calling it mine when it's really his. 
I've been partially submissive, whatever it is for you. If you could even see that, that is not your wisdom. The Holy Spirit is working in you now to show you what that is. And that's pretty awesome. Listen, there's a lot of room for us to repent, church, as we grow as disciples, that we would joyfully tremble in the presence of the holy begotten Son of God come to rule his kingdom to the very edges of the cosmos. And listen, if you're here and you are far from Christ or you're just kind of checking Jesus out, you're not even really sure about the whole Christianity thing or you're watching online right now and that's just where you happen to be, listen, I'll I'll repeat something I've already said. We submit to the king or we declare war, but neutrality is a myth. And his wrath does not delay. That's what it means whenever it says it's quickly kindled. Whenever that, psalm, that, that second psalm says it's quickly kindled, it doesn't mean that he doesn't understand how to, how to be temperate. It doesn't mean that he just has a tantrum and starts punching holes in the wall or anything like that. It just means that when he judges, it is not delayed. That's all that means. He isn't your homie. He's not just a good teacher. He is the untamable lion who is also a lamb. He is terrifying and he is wonderful. He's dangerous, and he's totally safe, all at the same time. And I'll just remind you that the throne you sit on doesn't even fit you. You don't belong there. It was made for Christ, our gentle champion. Your best days, friend, are spent with a bent knee. Your best days. Your satisfaction will be deepest in kissing the hand of the Son. And we're going to pray for you in just a minute, if that's you, that God would change your heart today, today, that this would be the day